Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Well, more than 50 years after they broke up, Beatles fans around the world got to listen to a new Fab Four song today. Now and Then was written by John Lennon back in the late 1970s and sat unfinished for decades until technology finally allowed Lennon's voice to be extracted from what was a pretty scratchy, hissy demo tape. We talked to Canada's biggest Beatles fan and one of the biggest experts about Beatlemania in this country about his reaction to the song. And speaking of musical legends, she is one of the most admired and influential musicians Canada has ever produced. Sylvia Tyson is about to release what she said will be her final album. There's some great songs on it. Of course, she has an incredible history in music. She joins me to talk about that fantastic career and why she thinks this should be her swan song. This is an issue that's been coming up quite a bit of late. How can public comments you make outside of the workplace, such as on social media or at a protest, get you into trouble with your employer? Where is the line between speaking your mind and misconduct? We find out. But first, it has been a very rough year for the federal Liberal government, and opinion polls show them plummeting in popularity right across the country. Now a Canadian senator and former chief of staff to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien says the prudent course of action for Justin Trudeau would be to step aside and let someone else in the Liberal caucus take over. That, unless anything changes a few years before an election. So will he stay or will he go? Far from a magical mystery tour for the federal Liberal government in 2023, plummeting in the opinion polls, the last Leger survey I saw placed the Conservatives at 40% nationally, compared to 26% for the Liberals. In terms of leader preference, Pierre Polyev has now built a solid double-digit lead over Justin Trudeau as the favourite for, for Prime Minister, and his approval ratings are down in the low 30s compared with the 62% disapproval rating. It has been a tough year. Now, keep in mind, these are polls, and we're still a couple of years away from an election, logically, if everything stays the way it is. Uh, But it's perhaps no surprise that some of the Liberal Party are getting a little antsy about what may lay ahead these days. One of them is independent Senator Percy Down, a former chief of staff to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, who wrote an op-ed saying, quote, the prudent course of action is for Justin Trudeau to follow in his father's snowy footsteps and step aside and let someone else in the Liberal caucus take over with a few years to go before another election, as I mentioned. The Prime Minister was asked about that today, and, well, here's what he had to say. In, a, in an op-ed, he's calling on you to step down. Sorry, who's that? Senator Down, a former... Li- oh, sorry. Former Percy staff Down? before Jean-Pierre. Oh, Percy. Yeah, Percy. Oh, yeah. How's yeah. he doing? He wants you to quit. <laughs> oh, well. This is, this. I, I uh, wish him all the best in the work that he's doing. Right. So there you have it. Pretty dismissive, right? This all comes as the Trudeau government continues to get hammered over that sudden decision to offer a three-year exemption on the carbon tax to home heating oil users, a move that really benefits Atlantic Canada, a liberal stronghold where their support was slipping, but also a place where the carbon tax was making heating really unaffordable because it's the one part of the country where most people use home heating oil. Uh, Still, others have been fighting Trudeau's government on this issue for ages and where the exemption will have little impact places like alberta and saskatchewan are crying foul so is the opposition uh they're now saying it's a two-tiered and unfair system for populations who heat with natural gas there's been a loud chorus around that and on monday the conservatives will hold a non-binding vote they've prompted one uh one the government can ignore on pausing the carbon tax on all home heating fuels and guess who's on side with them the federal NDP. They announced that today. Well, joining me now to decipher all of this is Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken. Thank you so much, David. 
<laughs> yes, I mean, uh, thank God for that. Otherwise, I'd be bored silly. But no, I mean, I love politics, especially when it's turbulent. And that's what it is now. And it really started all last week. At the end of the week, at the end of the day, I think it was Thursday, when we got that surprise announcement that the uh, Trudeau government was going to do the carbon tax pause, but only on certain kinds of products, home heating oil. And lo and behold, it turns out that you know, it's, it's yeah, that's an Atlantic Canada story. Today, the prime minister was trying to defend this by pointing out the number of Albertans and Saskatchewanians and Ontarians. I don't think he mentioned the number of British Columbians. I hear there's a couple in BC that uh, heat with home heating oil. Not many. But really. Not What's many. That? It's, not many. Not I mean, that, when you look at that list, it's almost, it's 90% Atlantic Canada, right? A little bit in Quebec, a little bit in Ontario, but really that's about it. Yeah, it's an Atlanta Canada story. And 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 as and this is where some liberal MPs were saying the thing out loud they probably shouldn't have, is that uh, they noted that uh, this pause was the result of their fierce lobbying um, of the Trudeau government. And then on the last weekend, uh, one of the cabinet ministers from Newfoundland Labrador, Goody Hutchins, she's from Cornerbrook, you know, she said on a, on a news program, she said, you know, maybe you folks in the rest of the country ought to elect more liberals who can uh, jump up and down. Yeah, and listen, that, that'll go have... over well in Red Deer. That'll go over well in well, Red Deer. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, Ben, you couldn't find wider smiles on the faces of Pierre Polyev and the entire conservative caucus because the whole idea of pricing carbon is to convince consumers, producers, everybody in the economy to find lower carbon producing options and price signals. Everybody says every paper I've ever seen says you can do it a whole number of ways, but doing it that way is the, is the most cost effective way you can do it by regulation, but believe it, regulations still cost money. Companies still have to work on these. So anyways, so that carbon pricing is the best way to do this. And that has been the Trudeau government's mantra, except if you're using home heating oil in a vulnerable political region of the country for the liberals, Atlantic Canada. And so now all of those critics of the carbon pricing regime, and that is basically every big C and little C conservative in Canada, Pierre Polyev, Scott Moe, Daniel Smith, you name it, now says, see, it's not an environmental, actually Polyev's line is this. He says, it's not environmental science, it's political science. So he says that what Trudeau did has been shown to be a sham, because it's not a policy reason, it's a political tax or, or a political pause. And then as many others say, well, if you are then going to start releasing, and this is where the New Democrats come in, the federal New Democrats and the BC New Democrats come in, is saying, listen, I, I get the idea of a pause on, on the cost to heat your home, but if you're going to give that break to basically what are Atlantic Canadians, hello, can you help us out? in other parts of the country. And it is a little more complicated, particularly for BC, e even though it's, you know, most homes I understand are natural gas homes, but there's no federal surcharge on carbon in BC because of course, BC was the first to adopt its own carbon tax. It's a mess. But David, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a paid political strategist, but anybody could have told you that the carbon mm -hmm. was going to land like a, like with a thud everywhere outside of Atlantic Canada. And that People who oppose the carbon tax would just be sharpening their knives for, with this one, and I can't understand how the liberals didn't didn't see it. I mean, I know the the, yeah. you know, the numbers were plummeting in Atlantic Canada. I get what the pressure was, but you know, wow, exactly, wow, wow is the word. Exactly, how did not somebody sort of see this coming? It seems pretty obvious. You know, if you did a poll now in Atlantic Canada, you think the Liberals are all of a sudden like, like, like you know, on, on cloud nine? No, I don't think it's going to resuscitate their political fortunes to that part of the country. And even more so, 
you know, one of the, uh, we may have talked about this before, one of the, I think the, you know, rising stars in the cabinet uh, or the chance to have a rising star, given the opportunity, is the new housing and infrastructure minister, Sean Fraser. He's the minister for Nova Scotia, the political minister of Nova Scotia. He's, he's from Central Nova. And just three days before this pause, there was Fraser out in front of the camera saying, absolutely not. We are not pausing this. And three days later, his prime minister took the reg out from under him. Now, the next day after that pause, uh, or this week, rather, you know, uh, there's uh, caucus meetings and cabinet meetings and everybody, every reporter is, and I was one of those, is staked out front. And we want to ask, for instance, John Wilkinson, the Energy and Natural Resources Minister, are there more carve-outs? And absolutely not. No yeah. more carve-outs. And then that was repeated by the Prime Minister. Same phrase, absolutely not more carve-outs. So, you can clearly tell that this, quote, carve out for Atlanta, Canada, it embarrassed people like Wilkinson, who was absolutely a campaigner for climate and had been before. It embarrassed him in that stakeholder community of climate activists. And uh, it made Trudeau look like, you know, are you, do you have the back of ministers who are out there, whatever? So, so then this very sharp language from the liberals after the fact saying, no, that's it. The barn doors closed. I know that Atlantic horse got out, but no other horses are getting out. Wilkinson's a pretty good performer in the House of Commons. As, as ministers go, he tries to answer questions and be honest and frank about things, but he was having no fun in question period. Karina Gould is the government House leader. She's an Ontario MP, so she's one of those who the Conservatives are saying, hey, how come those Atlantic Canadian Liberals can get a break for the carbon tax, but you Ontario Liberals, what worth are you? And she had to get on her feet and try to have an answer and i you know no i mean it's 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 a mess it's you mentioned it was snowing in ottawa i mean is this is this it is this is this going to be the time justin trudeau has always sort of completely dismissed any kind of speculation that that the knives are sharpening for him but you can't imagine that liberal mps and senators and so on are watching this thinking oh yeah we can continue like this for the next two years no problem believe it or not i think that's what they think inside the pmo (laughs) yes uh first of all percy down uh, Percy Down is a former chief staff to former PM Jean Chrétien. So he has certainly been inside the halls of power, but he's a he's a senator. And as you know, 2016 or 2017, uh, Justin Trudeau kicked all of his senators out yeah. of his caucus. There's, they're all there's independents. No more, yeah, so, yeah, right, they're all so independents. There's no more liberal senators. And I guess, you know, this is the, you know, one of the unforeseen consequences is one day one of those, quote, liberal senators is going to say something I don't really like. But it's also to point out that I don't think Percy Down is close to, quote, the center of power or decisions. He's a he's an independent senator. But, you know, as I say, he is a liberal. Certainly he's he wants the liberal side to win. And he tried to couch it in nice ways. You know, Trudeau was the one who took us out of the wilderness and was the right guy at the right time and all that sort of thing. And he was. I don't think there's any question about that. But basically down saying Trudeau's best before date is done. Trudeau, when you get him asked about this, I can tell you that. Those around him know that he is aching for a fight with Polyev. He doesn't like Polyev. Polyev doesn't like Trudeau. There's been this idea floated that if Jean Charest had won the conservative leadership, you know, Justin Trudeau might have made the decision that, okay, time to pass the baton. If we lose to this guy, Charest, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. And, uh, you know, but he, he doesn't want to lose to Polyev. He doesn't want his party to lose Polyev. And he thinks he's the guy for the job. Would there be somebody else who could step up and step uh, into the job and instantly turn fortunes around? Hard to think about it. I, I mentioned Sean Fraser, but yeah, he's good. Mark Carney was out again today, but I mean, I've followed Mark Carney for a long time. I just don't, I don't see it with Mark Carney. I, I mean, so I get Mark, the CV, but I don't get it. I don't get him as that guy. 
like, so you, you're up against a guy who's a populist. And I use when I say populist, I define it as someone who has built a very successful campaign around the idea that elites cannot be trusted. Institutions cannot be trusted. That you hear Polyev, we need to restore the common sense quote of the common people. Forget that Polyev's an elite himself. He's only ever had a job in politics for the last, I don't know how many years, and earns $280,000 a year and lives in a mansion that is paid for by you, me, and the taxpayers. He's fighting for the quote, common person. And it is resonating. So here comes Mark Carney, who is like the absolute definition of the Laurentian elite. Honest to God, I can tell you, the Polyev team, they want to face Trudeau because they, they think they can beat him. They don't like him. They'd love to face Mark Carney. They think that would be a bloodbath, they think. So we'll see what, what Carney says. I know that he had this interview with the Globe and Mail, and he said, uh, yeah, I'm ruled out a run for leader. But I take even more interest that he might become an MP. And I would encourage uh, Mark Carney to, if, he, if he's at all interested ever in leading, try to be an MP first because it's a tough job. It's not an easy job. And it's an important job because you, he will learn some, he is, he is a very skilled individual at what he does being a banker, you know, running around the world and trying oh, yeah, he's talented. He's sure, just not but, very engaging. I mean, I've interviewed him. I mean, he's a, he's a really smart guy, but he's, he's not going to wake up a room. He just isn't, he just isn't. He's a wonk. Yeah, I, is. I interviewed him once, Ben, and this is when he was the bank of Canada governor. And the first, it, the, there was an ad campaign from a credit card company that, you know, asked, what have you got in your wallet? Right. Yes. And then, and so that's the first question I asked him. I said, what do you got in your wallet? Do you have a credit card? What's your, how much do you own your car? Guys always paid for his cars in cash. Like <laughs> he doesn't live our world. And I think, you know, that goes to what you're saying. It's like, is he in touch with people? Like, does he understand? I got a credit card payment I got to make. I, I got a payment on a sofa. I got a payment on a bed. He doesn't have that. He just pays cash. No, he, he doesn't have anything it. on layaway at Leon's. I tell you. He exactly. Anyway, so doesn't. who else is it? I have no uh, idea. What's your gut instinct? I mean, you've you've watched this for so long now. What's your gut instinct tell you about Trudeau? Does he stay? I think I, he does. I think he stays. But listen, don't forget, right now Justin Trudeau's a dad, and he's kind of a single dad because, mm -hmm. as we know, Justin and Sophie have parted ways. I, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm trying to get inside his head to say, does he still yeah. have that same fire? I think he does. But I mean, we're going through. I mean, that walk in the snow that Pierre Trudeau had. It did come around the Christmas season. I think it was like in December or early January, right? And we're going to get some snow here in Ottawa. Uh, not enough to have a walk in it. Let's see what happens over the holidays. You know, we're, I, I can tell you every reporter in town, uh, our team, every team is keeping a very close eye on Trudeau's calendar and what he's doing. Um, one big hint take a, with, that we always look for, take a look at the departure of, of senior political staff, aides who've been with him forever. But the key person if katie telford decides yeah. to leave yeah. she's been the prime minister's partner in crime since he was opposition leader she's ran his campaigns she's the chief of staff to the pm for eight years which is an unbelievably long time to be the chief of staff to a prime minister it's a grinder of a job if she says i think i've had done enough then that's the point where i go okay maybe that's it but right now trudeau's got it in like he doesn't like polyev mark miller who's was Trudeau's best man at Trudeau's wedding to Sophie. Mark Miller yeah. is our current minister of immigration from Montreal. Uh, you know, Miller got asked just out of the blue by a reporter at one of these caucus meetings this week, should your party be attacking Poiliev, like throwing out attack heads? And if you look, they are actually now doing some. They are. Heads. Yeah. But Mark Miller took that question and he teed off on Polyev. He, goes, he I did. Don't like so Paul don't yet. trust him with your wallet and so on. It was he says, I mean, yeah, he know, says he's bad Mark for Miller democracy. Doesn't... He's Trudeau's buddy. And he yeah. doesn't like what Polyev's saying about his buddy. And I guarantee you, Miller wants to get in the boxing ring with oh. Polyev. Like, he, wow. let's go. 
This so, sounds like this sounds like hockey now, David. This sounds like yeah, two well, teams that uh, don't like each other at all. David, as always, thank you. All right. Thanks, Ben. This is an interesting story that I was reading the other day. Two Montreal residents and a Brooklyn man have been charged in New York over an alleged scheme to violate U.S. sanctions by exporting millions of dollars of technology, military technology mostly, to Russia, including equipment supporting the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine. The Canadians Nikolai Goltsev and Kristina Pusareva were each charged with smuggling conspiracy, with smuggling rather, and conspiracy to violate sanctions and wire fraud conspiracy. These are pretty serious charges. They were arrested. They're Russian-Canadian nationals. The two of them were arrested at a Manhattan hotel during a trip to visit the third suspect in this case. Case. John Boscariel is head of McCarthy Tetro's International Trade and Investment Law Group. He's who we call when we want to talk about sanctions and people who are alleged to have violated them. And he joins me now. John, thanks for your time. Welcome back. Uh, pleasure to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me. This seems like a, a relatively small operation, but certainly one that, um, that at least according to the allegations, was having a pretty, pretty significant impact in terms of transferring uh, sanctioned military technology to Russia. I think it's uh, an important development and an important example. I think when sanctions were first passed, obviously the focus was on um, these kinds of products moving directly from, say, the United States, Canada, or other Western nations to Russia and then being used on the battlefield. Now the emphasis is definitely turning to evasion or circumvention, where you have parties... um, not directly shipping these items from the U.S. to Russia, but instead to other countries like China, UAE, Turkey, and so forth. And then from there, the shipment goes on to Russia and then finds its way onto the battlefield. So it's it's an important uh, example, I think, of authorities turning their attention now to the evasion elements that um, are popping up now. Right. I mean, this was, I mean, the charges have come in the U.S. This was, I guess, meant to be based in, in, in the New York area. But there are two Canadians involved as well. What was their, what is their alleged involvement in all this? Well, I think the, the allegation is that they, along with a third person, an American, and those two Canadians are, are dual nationals, Canadian, Russian, but they were involved in setting up the front company, organizing the movement of these items um, from the U.S. to these third countries before they got to Russia. Um, They actually uh, were, at least one of them was employed by a company in Montreal. Um, That company was added to a entity list by the U.S. Department of Commerce last March. Um, So there is definitely a tie-in here to Canada, and I think that may be raising eyebrows on the Canadian side. Indeed, because uh, I guess the question then becomes, why wouldn't Canada be uh, have, have caught on to this? But I gather a lot of what was being purchased, at least, that those purchases were being made in the U.S. Yeah, from the materials available, from the allegations available in the materials, it appears that a lot of the activity was taking place in the U.S. But that being said, Canadians, Canadian nationals are subject to Canadian sanctions law, wherever they are in the world, mm-hmm. um, it travels with your nationality. And so um, in this case, although a lot of the activity took place in the United States, there certainly would be jurisdiction on the part of Canada to be able to um, pursue charges if they wished against Canadian citizens who are involved in activities outside of Canada, but still violate sanctions. 
Right. I mean, the allegations are, are pretty substantial. Was it over the course of a year, 300 shipments valued at $10 million? I mean, and, and a lot of this equipment apparently ending up on the battlefield as well. I suppose anytime sanctions come into place, there are immediately, and we've seen this in other parts of the world, there is immediately a whole system that builds up around to try and circumvent those sanctions in any way possible. That That's exactly right. And we've seen that in the past with other sanctions programs prior to Russia's latest uh, invasion of Ukraine. You know, we've seen that happen with Iran uh, and other jurisdictions that very quickly a black market develops. Uh, and the authorities usually, um, uh, certainly the U.S. authorities, get on top of that pretty quickly. I know the G7 recently have made statements about coordinating their efforts to make sure that uh, they capture this evasion. In other words, these shipments through third countries that are being disguised. Um, obviously more difficult to capture, but when authorities um, do cooperate on this and put some effort into it, they're going to get some successes, and it appears they may have got that here. Yeah, when one looks at at maybe the motivations behind it, again, these allegations haven't been proven in court, uh, uh, but there was indeed, I mean, oftentimes this is done purely for profit. It seems, to some extent, at least according to the evidence that's been released, that this was actually a concerted effort to help Russia. This This was out of patriotism as much as anything else. Yes, I think there was some reference in some of the emails that have been released that they were doing it to help the motherland and so forth. Um, but uh, make no mistake, I'm sure a lot of money was involved. And yeah. There was a definite profit motive here. Millions, of course. What does this tell you about uh, how the Americans are approaching this? Because I think we often look to the Americans as kind of the front runners when it comes to, to clamping down on these sorts of things. They seem to have the resources and the wherewithal to do it. Not it's not foolproof, obviously, but they seem to lead the pack here. Is this is this a signal from the Americans to others out there who may be engaged in similar activity? I, I, I definitely think it is. And it's not only the Americans. We were seeing enforcement action in other jurisdictions. Just um, earlier this week or last week, there was enforcement action taken in the Netherlands with respect to semiconductor shipments going to Russia. So a, a number of countries are stepping it up and making examples of these instances. Obviously, in the case of the United States, they have far more resources than Canada does um, and are therefore on top of a lot of these schemes and have the resources to chase them. But uh, I would think there's some expectation on the Canadian side here that we'll likely see enforcement action from Canada at some point. The pressure is definitely on. Well, John, as always, thank you. No problem at all, Ben. Great to speak with you. Stay for now with the war in Ukraine. We were just talking about uh, two Canadian, Russian Canadians who've been arrested and charged in the U.S. with allegedly violating sanctions rules. Um, Last week, 50 Ukrainian MPs sent a letter to the Prime Minister and all Canadian parliamentarians urging Canada to pass a law that would allow countries or allow Canada to seize Russian state assets and redirect that money to Ukraine. Right now, we can freeze Russian fu- Russian funds, but it is only able to seize and distri- redistribute them um, to, in this case, it's really only private assets, right? And that was adopted back in 2022. So you may have seen there's that huge Antonov plane that was seized that's sitting in Toronto. Uh, that's part of that. Uh, Roman Abramovich, the, uh, the oligarch who owned Chelsea Football Club in London, his assets are up in the air and there's a court fight going on. This would be a bit different. This would allow literally state assets. We don't know how many there are in Canada exactly, but state assets of Russia to be frozen, taken, and then sent to Ukraine to help with rebuilding and so on. It's all part of a bill uh, called S-278 that was tabled by Senator Ratna 
Amadavar. And again, it would it would amend the Special Economic Measures Act in the Senate, of course, would go through that. And, and that would, again, it would allow for that money, Russian money, essentially, to be used uh, to help Ukraine. To explain why that's such a big help and why Canada would set a precedent that Ukraine wants to see, Kira Rudik is one of the MPs who signed the letter. She's head of the Golos Party, and she joins me now from Kiev. Uh, Kira, thank you so much. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for keeping focus on Ukraine. We really need it. Yes, indeed. I mean, th- that must be something. Uh, I mean, we'll talk about the letter first, because you've sent a letter to Canadian parliamentarians signed by you and 49 other, 49 other Ukrainian MPs, and it's pretty specific about the demands. It's about this Bill 278. Uh, what does it do, and how would it benefit Ukraine? Well, it's an important bill by um, Canadian parliamentarian Ratna Omidwar. She has been a very good friend and advocate, uh, and she was an author of the first uh, bill in the world on confiscating uh, Russian assets and using them for the sake of Ukraine. After that, Canadian example followed uh, parliamentarians in the United States, in the United Kingdom, and in many European countries. So it was a huge breakthrough. And that previous bill, it was about... Uh, going to court and using some of the frozen assets that are right now in Canada. And uh, if the uh, court procedures are followed, then the money from the confiscated assets can go to Ukraine. So this new bill is about the Russian state assets and confiscating them by decision of the government. So before the full-scale invasion started, Russia has allocated, saved for the rainy day, about $350 billion dollars of state assets. So Putin was really preparing for that. 200 million of those state assets are right now in Canada. And uh, there is no court procedure and no court order and way of confiscating them. The only way to do is through the bill in the parliament and then through the decision of the government. And this is why what Senator Omidvar submitted is another breakthrough where Canada would be another um, pass, uh, trailing the pass. For yeah, trailblazer, right. Yes, yes. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is why uh, we as parliamentarian in Ukraine and myself that has been working on this matter of confiscating assets and using them for the sake of Ukraine, we are so grateful and we are so impressed by this step. And this is why we wrote an open letter to Prime Minister Trudeau and to the parliament saying, please support this. It's very important for Ukraine. I will right. just give you some numbers. Sure. So recently uh, just, had- so, Kira, just so listeners understand, the previous one allowed for the seizure of private assets, right? So, for instance, right. that of an oligarch or so on. There's an Antonov plane that was seized. And, but this would allow state assets, which is a very different thing. And, and as you mentioned, there's a lot of Russian money, state money out there around the world that hasn't been confiscated. So, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so, like, recently we had Joseph Borrell, uh, the key person for the security in European Union. He was in Kiev. And he said that the total amount of the uh, support, uh, military support and financial support that EU have given us is about 25 billion euros. Just compare in your mind the 25 billion and then 500 billion, which is a total amount of all Russian assets, both state and private, right now frozen in the whole world. So it's so obvious, so logical and so fair to go ahead and use those money to support Ukraine to cover for different budgeting programs in countries that are standing with us instead of using taxpayers' money. And we know that with the war going on, 
we still need uh, support. We still need weapons. And we see that the war would not be over uh, really soon as we hoped for. We are dragging into the war of attrition and Putin is very happy. This is what he hoped for. So we would need more support. And we understand that uh, it will be very hard to ask like for indefinite um, support from our allies. Right. The, the idea here, of course, is that under normal circumstances, and this has been talked about already, there would be reparations, but, but Russia is not going to pay those reparations. So this is essentially getting one step ahead of that. Absolutely. So even imagine that Russia has lost the war today. How and like which, uh, what would be a procedure to get the reparations from them? We understand that you can only get reparations from the country where you like taking over. And this is not our goal, of course. We're just fighting for our own country and making sure that Russia would not attack us again. So what are the legal ways of getting money from them to pay for all the damage and destruction? I do not think there is this way. And this is why we have to establish it. Moreover, this process creates this precedent that will be a very good sign to the rest of the authoritarian regimes about what's going to happen with them if they will start full-scale invasion. I do not think there is a better way uh, and a better example uh, for all the authoritarian regimes uh, to see what's going to happen with them. If they will start full-scale invasion, them saying all your money will be gone then. And this is what is getting uh, getting the countries to rethink their potential um, plans. How are you feeling? I mean, we've spoken quite a few times about the mood in Kyiv, the mood amongst parliamentarians. Clearly, you know that from this side, we're reading. I mean, it's it's it's. I I don't want to talk about war fatigue because if you're not in a war zone, you don't have war fatigue. But how is how are you viewing it from Kyiv right now? Is there concerns about about just costs and so on from from your perspective? I mean, this is obviously something. This is a solution to try to address. I think some of those issues that have started to creep up about the cost of the war. Right, get Russia to pay. Well, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, uh, you see that uh, what's going on in uh, our one of our biggest allies, the United States, mm-hmm. where first they had uh, issues with the, getting the speaker. Now we don't know if they are going to vote in time for the amount of support that we need, both um, support in terms of the military and also the financial support that we need just to like barely exist here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, with the, those concerns, we need to figure out different mechanisms, uh, especially that we know that 2024 will be incredibly hard year for us, both militarily, but also with uh, a certain exhaustion of the resources. And then with uh, the elections in the United States, in uh, European Union, in the United Kingdom early in 2025, but still the preparations uh, will be there. And uh, I can tell you, we understand that uh, even though people can be uh, 100% behind us, when politicians get into the um, um, into the rally... Right. Uh, it, 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 into election to, time, yeah. 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 They tend to polarize. And this is why we are looking to uh, different alternative ways of uh, of supporting ourselves. And uh, this is why it is so important for us to get this additional financing. Um, Plus, right now, we are preparing for this another hard winter. It will be a second winter since the uh, full-scale invasion started. We do not have any... Uh, signs of uh, Russia changing their tactics. So we understand that our energy infrastructure and critical infrastructure will be attacked by missiles. 
and um, um, we are getting ready for the worst, for the uh, outages and uh, for spending uh, the winter in cold. But right. it does not affect general resilience of people. Uh, you know, people are talking about how hard it is and how like, the toll that has been on themselves, their families, their kids, everyone, people fighting in the front. But what I never heard from anyone saying like, oh, we should stop it or, oh, we should give up. No, this is not even a topic to discuss. We understand that we should be pushing and this is on us um, to to stand together and fight together. Well, Kira, as always, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ben. And glory to Ukraine. Here's an interesting topic that's uh, come up quite a bit in the last uh, month and a half, month and a bit or so, or less than a month at this point. But how can public comments made outside of the workplace become a problem for your employer? Now, voicing an opinion about world events is something that people do all the time, mainly without fear of consequence. That can start to get a little tricky. Obviously, when it comes to things like social media, where your opinions are published or amplified potentially to a massive worldwide audience and where potentially people who disagree with you are watching to see and and pick out people who are expressing opinions that they disagree with. Uh, That can have certainly have personal consequences, usually limited to criticism, unless you step over the line into what qualifies as hate speech under the criminal code, obviously. But what about as an employee? What about if, as an employee, what about your, 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 the, the agreement you have with your employer? Um, and we've seen more, of, more than a few examples of that, as I was mentioning. Uh, what if you voice opinions that your employer may fear casts the entire company in the wrong light? There was a case recently in Vancouver um, where someone who works for a local college was, uh, video, was taped or videoed at a, at a rally saying things about the attack of October 7th, and that's turned into a huge big deal. I gather that uh, that employee for the time being is not there, and uh, her future is, is in doubt. No final decision has been made, but it highlights the issues about these very fraught times politically and just what that means for you uh, if you have an employer. Just how free should you be with your opinions? Erin Brandt practices employment and human rights law. She's the founder, co-founder rather, of Porta Law. And she joins me now. Erin, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, geopolitics has always been fraught. People always have opinions, but social media, social media really changed everything, didn't it, when it comes to this sort of thing? Because all of a sudden, something that your employee says could all of a sudden be seen around the world and amplified around the world as if they had published it, right? Absolutely. I mean, we've been talking for years now about how statements that an employee can make outside of the workplace that go viral, uh, how that can impact an employer's reputation. What are the, I mean, I mean, I guess we, we, we have this idea that we, that we live in a society where you can pretty much say what you want unless it crosses certain lines. And by lines, I mean sort of criminal code lines and so on. But, but that, that's not the same as the agreement you have with your employer, is it, is it necessarily? It, there's, there's a lot of different legal concepts to bring into this discussion. Right. Um, so to kind of just start with the basics, um, employees have a right to a safe work environment. Um, Employees have a right to uh, be free from discrimination at work on the basis of political belief, on the basis of religion. Uh, And so employees do have some legal protections when it comes to what they say or do. Um, Other employees also have rights uh, and protections from uh, offensive behavior that might impact the workplace. So I think that, you know, you've, ta- you've mentioned crossing the line. I think that where somebody 
says something or does something that crosses that line um, that can have an impact on employment relationships at work. And I think that's where uh, an employer's duties to provide a safe work environment for all employees becomes engaged. Right. I, I guess this is a tricky one for employers, right? Because what we see, and, and you know, the last few weeks have been, have been an example of it, but I've seen it happen elsewhere before, is that sometimes people will target someone's employer if they disagree with what they've said. And sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes what, what's been said can be very offensive. Sometimes it's not. Uh, but oftentimes that's sort of where people are targeted. People will, will at their workplace or their employer in a tweet, for instance, about something they disagree with. Yes, we are definitely seeing a lot of that. Uh, we're seeing that flying in every direction, I think. Uh, and so I think it comes down to each employer evaluating, you know, did this employee of mine say something or do something that crosses a line? And is that going to have a negative impact on their colleagues' ability to show up to work uh, and on our work environment and on our reputation? Right. So I guess the work environment is really the key here, right? If you're, if you, if you're thinking about what not what and what not to do or say that you should keep in mind how your colleagues might react to it in in an in a work environment that is meant to be from from every shape from every way inclusive and safe exactly right uh, that, that is but you know the thing is in, in in practice it's in theory it sounds pretty straightforward in practice it tends to get pretty messy it does. It does, because a lot of people think that they have a right to say and do whatever they want on their free time, and that it has nothing to do with what happens at work. But there is an entire area of case law around, you know, what constitutes off-duty misconduct and what are the consequences of engaging in, miscon- in off-duty misconduct, right? So somebody can say or do something on their, in their free time that is so offensive and goes so viral and has such a significant impact on the workplace, then an employer is then faced with a choice of, you know, has to do something about it, right? They've got one employee who did this thing and and is claiming protection for free speech and for political belief or religious belief. And then you've got another employee that's saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, my colleague just did something which infringes my religious beliefs or my political beliefs or, you know, creates a a workplace that's unsafe for me. And so then the employer has, has a choice in front of them whether to do something about it or not. Um, and there's there's a lot of um, it's a it's a complex legal environment to be in. Um, but ultimately, you know, if if somebody does do something on their own free time um, that has an impact in the workplace, um, you know, they can face discipline up to and including termination of employment. Right. Uh, I, I'm one thing that I've always been fascinated by because I've worked in different places, obviously, that have sort of sort of I mean, let's take social media policies. Right. I mean, they are if you look through your companies, if you work for a, a larger organization, they have social media policies. Right. And you should read them. People should read them yeah. because they don't they're not always they're not particularly concise, but they do draw broad, broad strokes about what you should and shouldn't be doing and what could get you into trouble. Yeah, and I, I think that and every employer is going to approach this a little bit differently, right? Like especially larger employers are going to have spent time developing their policy manuals. And their policy manuals, one, in British Columbia, every employer is required to have a bullying and harassment policy in place. They're required to define what bullying and harassment is. And a lot of policies will go above and beyond um, to cover respectful workplace generally. Um, and where an employer receives a complaint, they have a legal duty to investigate that complaint in accordance with their policies. Uh, and then you're right, a lot of employers will go even further and have social media policies that will talk about, you know, these are our expectations of you in engaging in social media. And when it comes to social media policies, um, they're all going to be very different from one another. And so it's really important. I, 
I mean, you've nailed it, that employees should read their policies to figure out, you know, what exactly is expected of them in the workplace. And where an employer communicates a clear standard, um, it's going to be a lot easier for an employer to take action on that standard. Yeah. Although again, it's just, it, it, you're, you're, it's that, it's that sort of, there is, there is that, that bristling that you do when you think, wait a second, like, this is my free time. I'm on, I'm on my free time voicing an opinion I may have about something that's going on around the world, whether it be something that everybody's talking about or something more obscure in another part of the world. What, what business is it of my employer to, to judge that, right? I mean, that's, that's where, that's where it starts to get, it starts to get a little, um, that's where I think people bristle a little bit. But again, I think in the last while we've really been faced with, with the complexities of that, of this issue. Sometimes it's been a little bit less, a little more cut and dried, I think, but there's been a lot of examples out there where it seems very, very nebulous. Yes, yes, exactly. And I've been pushing people to really think deeply about what's being said out there and whether what's being said is crossing a line or not. And there's a lot of um, speech that is, I think, walking up to that line. And um, I think we need to be really careful about what we're saying publicly and what we're saying in public forums that are going to be recorded and could possibly go viral. I think that we, um, yeah, I think people should be careful about what they say um, because words, words, words have meaning and intent and words can cause harm. Uh, and so I think that um, we need to be really careful about speech that does cross that line. And we need to be really careful about evaluating what speech does or doesn't cross that line. It seems like a bit of a moving, I mean, it's a bit of a moving target, right? Um, good question. I don't know if it's a moving target. I think that there are some things that you just can't say, like you can't, Yes. You can't incite hatred. You can't incite hate speech. You can't incite violence. You can't uh, glorify terrorism. Like these things are all written into our criminal code. And those are things that you simply cannot do. So I guess some, some rules of thumb that people should think about, Aaron, when when going out to do it, because it's, it's, it's a very emotions run high in these circumstances, right? I mean, it, and it's not just the Israel-Gaza situation. There are other uh, issues that people feel very passionately about. Some may may not impact an employer the same way. But what should, what sort of, what are your rules of thumb when you advise people about staying out of trouble in these situations? Look, I, there's a lot of suffering in the world right now. And mm-hmm. I think that we can all empathize and feel compassion for those people that are suffering, I think that is very different from calling for the destruction of a people, um, calling for a genocide against a people, um, you know, calling for, you know, one people to wipe out a different people. I, I think those are all categories of speech that I have heard more than enough of over the last three and a half weeks and categories of speech that are leading to real consequences within our society. Um, Talking about and encouraging violence against each other. Um, Some people actually listen to that and and take action on it. And so I I think that we need to be, I would encourage people to stay away from speech that encourages violence globally and encourages violence within our Canadian communities. Yeah, and, and in that sense, I mean, sometimes I get the impression that 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 passions are inflamed, and people sometimes, especially on social media, I don't think the same is necessarily. But people sort of get 
caught up in the moment and say things that I just, I've, honestly, I've seen people say things in the last while, and this is not the first time, by the way, that, that I'm shocked by. I, mean, I think, how could you possibly write that down and say, and, and hit send and not think about what might happen if you do? I mean, that's, I mean, I agree with you completely. The, yeah, the compassion is what's really needed. But sometimes you think, what are you thinking? And I think that we really get caught up in groupthink, right? That it becomes yeah. cool or trendy to stand behind one cause or another. And it becomes cool or trendy to chant certain kinds of slogans without really understanding the intent or meaning behind those slogans or who those slogans are used to prop up. Um, and so I think we need to be really um, mindful. And I think we need to educate ourselves uh, before we join in on a public chant or before we take a megaphone and broadcast our views to the world. I think we need to be really careful to ensure that what we're saying is not harming someone else. And advice for employers, because you mentioned it earlier as well, sometimes employers can, because they're under a bit of pressure, can react very quickly to things that may be misinterpreted or, I mean, employees have rights as well in all of this. So employers should be should be careful in watching. I mean, it's again, it's a fraught time, and that's why I thought it'd be great to talk to you. Uh, employers should should be careful as well, I would imagine, and, and, and be judicious about this. This is a legal minefield, in my opinion. I think that there are going to, we have seen and there are going to be more legal claims being filed in every direction against anyone who puts themselves on a public platform. Um, and so I, I think that with respect to employers, I think employers should take a, take a minute, breathe, look at their internal policies, see what their internal policies say, read about what the law says, figure out what their rights and obligations are with respect to all of their employees, seek legal advice, uh, and then develop a course of action to move forward. Just in your shoes, what have you made then of the last while? It must be, um, I mean, it must be troubling, uh, in all honesty. It must, be, it must be interesting from a legal point of view, but, but it must be troubling as well to see what's all of a sudden starting to happen uh, in society around this issue. Yep, I think that's um, the understatement of the year. I'm incredibly <laughs> troubled by what I'm seeing around me, and um, it's taking everything I have to remain, you know, a calm and collected legal expert on this topic. Yeah, well, you've done a great job, Erin, and I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you for walking me through that, because, again, it's just one of those things that I felt like people should listen to and, and need to know more about, because there's just, I feel like there's more of, the, more of this is going to, we're going to be seeing more of this of late, and then these cases are going to be fought, and, and it's going to be, I mean, it might be groundbreaking to some extent, but maybe not in a good way. Yeah, I think I, I really, if I have a message for the general public, I really want to encourage people to approach conversation with compassion and empathy. Um, I think that's, I think that Canadian society, like what I'm seeing in our, in our communities, is really, really scary. Like people are afraid for their safety because of things that people are saying in public. And we need to walk ourselves back from that. Canada is a civilized society. We are a democratic country. And we are entitled, like, we're lucky to live in a country where, you know, we generally feel safe on our streets. And I, I just want to encourage, I want to just repeat what I said again. I really want to encourage people to choose their words carefully, to understand what they're saying, and to approach uh, speech with compassion and empathy. Well, that's both wise legal and wise societal advice, Erin. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That is a song called Sweet Agony from Sylvia Tyson's new record. Uh, it's set to be released tomorrow. Um, Sylvia's 83. She's been in this business. She's been singing and writing songs 
for more than six decades now, right? I mean, think back to the late 50s, early 60s. Um, Sylvia Tyson says this will be her swan song. This will be her final album. Let's call it The End of the Day. It will cap off an absolutely incredible career for the Chatham, Ontario-born singer-songwriter that now spans, as I mentioned, more than six decades, right? Uh, I mean, she really needs little introduction, simply one of the most admired and respected singer-songwriters that this country has ever produced. But if you need a little bit of a refresher, um, Sylvia left her hometown of Chatham, which is actually closer to Detroit than it is to Toronto. But it was Toronto uh, where she wound up in the late 50s and met Ian Tyson. Now, Ian and Sylvia, you'll recognize, of course, that combination. Um, they would head to New York in the early 60s. They would first play around the Toronto folk scene in the late 50s and early 60s. But then it was off to New York and just an absolutely burgeoning folk scene in Greenwich Village at the time. Uh, and that's where they would meet Albert Grossman, uh, the manager, uh, who, of course, was already handling Peter, Paul, and Mary, and soon would be handling Bob Dylan. I guess he didn't know if he had room for Ian and Sylvia, who auditioned apparently on his, in his, on his office floor, but he made room for them at the end. And that the second album, I guess, is the one most people will recognize, Four Strong Winds, a track that would see them rise to absolute stardom, chosen as the greatest Canadian song of all time on a program called 50 Tracks, the Canadian version. Um, and then that was Ian Tyson's first song that he'd written. And then, of course, Sylvia Tyson, not to be outdone, her first song is You Were On My Mind, which was covered by a bunch of people and is still one of their greatest songs um, that was on an album called Northern Journey. Uh, she, of course, is a Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame inductee. She actually helped create the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Uh, she's an Order of Canada member, a multi-Juno winner, uh, and the latest album is uh, is out tomorrow when she joins me. Now, Sylvia, what an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tell me a bit about, about releasing a record. I was listening to Sweet Agony, which of course is the, is, the, is the release that's out there to listen to now. What a haunting song. What a haunting song. You must, you must, how do you feel about the record? You must, it sounds, it's, it's a great record. You must be really proud of it. I'm very proud of it. Um, uh, Danny Greenspoon did a fantastic job of producing it. And uh, the, one of the things that he did that was quite wonderful was that the songs are very diverse, but he put together an ensemble of musicians that created a consistency for the album so that it all sounds all of a piece. And I'm very pleased with that. Yeah, how is your? I mean, you've been writing songs for 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 you know for the six decades now. Um, since I was mentioning, I was mentioning uh, the, the first one. Uh, how does that evolve over time? Because clearly, you have different stories to tell, right? Well, the first few songs are easy. After that, it gets harder. Um, you know, the the certainly uh, you were on my mind was kind of like a like a gift. I I couldn't begin to tell you where that came from except that there it was and I had written it. But um, I guess you become more critical of your writing as you get older and, and it's, it's harder. You, you're harder on yourself. Did you write You Were On My Mind in a bathtub? I, I think I've heard this story somewhere. Yes, well, that's, that's the, the famous story. Of, uh, yeah. We were staying in the Earl Hotel in Greenwich Village in New York and... Uh, in a, in a suite, and that sounds very ritzy, but in fact, <laughs> it really wasn't. Um, and I did write it in the bathtub, but it wasn't because I was having a bath. It it was because that was the only place the cockroaches wouldn't go. <laughs> 
Amazing. Yeah, th- that time in Greenwich Village. I mean, it, it, so many people lionize it and romanticize it. And I imagine it wasn't nearly as glamorous as people make it out to be. It, it doesn't, it, in the details, it doesn't sound it. Not glamorous at all. But at that age and at that point in one's career, you really didn't care. It was all very exciting. Where do you write now? Where do, how does your writing, songwriting process work? Do you try to write a bit every day? Was it something, did you sort of, when the inspiration hits you, you sit down and write something out, then we'll leave it, leave it for a while? How does that work now? Well, in some ways, I'm, I'm never not writing. There's always something on the back burner, even if I'm not consciously thinking about writing. But I mainly write in my head. Um, I used to go for long walks and, and, and write in my head when I was on the walks, but uh, I've, I've slowed down a little bit in that way. But that the same process works. I don't really put anything on paper until I really have the total concept in my head. What were some of the inspirations for this? I mean, you've mentioned that this is you, that you want this to be your last album, right? You've talked about it being your last. And I guess that there might be a, I don't know if there's added pressure there or there's actually a sense of relief. I don't know what that might be like to have written so many great songs over the years and think, okay, this will be, these are the last, this is the last collection. Um, what were some of the things you were looking to talk about on this record? Well, uh, certainly um, I think this album is a reflection of, of, of my age probably although i like to think that there there's there's a broader concept there as well um it's the the songs were were songs that were written over a period of time i hadn't recorded in like 15 years i had recorded with quartet the, the group that i worked with but but as a recording on my own i hadn't recorded at all so i had this whole collection of songs that I personally had never recorded, although some of them had been recorded by other people. And uh, so I really felt it was time to do it. And and as far as this being my last album, I, I feel like it'll probably be my last simply because I'm. it takes me a long time to write songs. And uh, so it might be another 10 or 15 years, and I don't know if I have that. <laughs> <laughs> One of your quartet colleagues wrote that first song. I helped you write Sweet Agony. Was it Cindy Church? Is that right? Yes, Cindy wrote the melody for that song. It must um, be nice to, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Go, yeah, um, it's, uh, it, that, that's not a love song, it's a song about love. And uh, so <laughs> I guess that's a kind of a unique point of view. But all of the ups and downs and ins and outs of, of falling in love and being in love and wanting to be in love. And... Uh, I had written that lyric and and hadn't gotten a satisfactory melody for it, so I sent it off to Cindy, and uh, and she wrote the melody. Uh, Sylvia, you have a new album out at the end of the day. It comes out tomorrow. Um, but when you look back at, at all the at all the songs over over the career, what's it like to look back at it now? Because some of the songs that you recorded with Ian back in the in the sixties, I mean, they're so lionized now. They almost have taken on a life of their own. But I'm sure when you wrote them, they were just songs, right? Well, uh, I guess as a songwriter, your favorite song is always the one you've just written. So back then, those would have been our favorites as well. Um, I'm very proud of the music that Ian and I made together. I, that music really holds up for me. And there's there's a, a fair amount of music from the 60s that, that doesn't hold up for me. But, uh, but I think that, that uh, those records stand the test of time. 
What do you think the secret to that was? Because I absolutely agree. There are some records that, that mightn't, have even, mightn't have even been the biggest hits of their day. But but some your records certainly hold up really well. There is It's the harmonies. Um, it's sort of a nod. I mean, I, I know you're a big Everly Brothers fan. There's sort of a purity to the songs. And there's also a timelessness to them. Uh, they're not songs of the moment. They're sort of eternal songs. And I think that really helps. Uh, and I wonder if that's that might be the secret. That's just my, my take. And I'm not a songwriter. Well, I, I think that... Uh... My view of, of songwriting is to write about real people and, and real lives and, and the things that affect people and the things that uh, make them happy and make them sad. You know, it, it really is uh, all about communicating. Yeah, and that and that is something that you can do. I mean, I, I remember hearing you say once that protest songs sort of have a, a short lifespan sometimes, that songs that are very much in the moment don't often age well. Uh, and of course, you were surrounded by those songs at a time and, and chose not to do them. I think those songs are very valid, but they do tend to be like yesterday's newspaper. At a certain point, they lose some relevance. And uh, so I've, I've never been inclined to uh, to write protest material. Certainly, I've I've written songs that that point out cert, as certain aspects of life that perhaps are not as as pleasant. But I don't know if I call them protest songs. What was it like to go? To, I mean, so many artists that I speak to now, uh, Canadian artists, go to Nashville, right? They go to Nashville to cut their teeth to learn. Uh, you, you blazed a trail to Nashville a long, long, long time ago. Uh, what was that like? What was that change from the New York scene like to a more uh, sort of more more roots, more country sound. Well, that certainly was where our our music sat, and in, in the in the great panoply of music. But uh, going to Nashville was great because uh, wonderful, wonderful musicians and and very um, supportive musicians. Uh, they they really seemed to be ready to to hear what we were doing, and it, we we weren't. Although we were country influenced and and folk influenced, we we, we weren't really country artists, and uh, so they were very welcoming. What was that? I mean? You grew up in Chatham, and I was you know I spent time in Chatham. My my I have my family's from London, so uh, it, it's pretty close to Detroit. So you must have had a lot of influences too. Just growing up musically, there must have been a lot going around that that sort of has stayed with you forever and ever. My dad worked at. The, in the appliance department at Eaton's, and uh, we got usually uh, the first uh, the first trade-ins on on radios and televisions came to us. And uh, the first radio I had was it was more like a piece of furniture. It had sliding doors and a tiny little dial on it. And I used to listen to the late night stations out of Detroit, the uh, Mickey and Sylvia and, and Little Willie John and. And sort of pre pre Motown, really, although, but going definitely in that direction, and that was influential on me for sure. Yeah, because your music has always been an amalgamation of many things. I mean, it might sound because I think people outside of of non musicians tend to want to classify music, but even even the stuff that sounds more country isn't really. I mean, I wouldn't classify it as pure country music. There's a lot there. I mean, it, it could be change a few chords, and it's and it's a soul record, right? That and 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 I think that the lyrics, the slant of the lyrics, is different too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, although uh, you know, I love country music. I've always thought of country music as, as music for adults, although it's it's changed a lot recently. Um, you know, the, it's about about adult people with adult problems, and uh, and certainly that's part of what uh, what what my writing is about. 
What do you do? You listen? Do, are there still? Do you still go out and discover new tunes and listen to new artists to see what they're all about? Ones that are people are talking about particularly glowingly. I occasionally hear something that knocks my socks off, but but not that often. You know, I guess I'm a little jaded at this point. That and the fact that really I've absorbed my influences. I I don't listen to other people's music for for inspiration at this point. I and uh, I find that. I, I don't want to influence my writing with someone else's writing. I'm I'm a bit uh, selfish about that. Yeah. I was looking back at the year that's been, of course, we talked about the passing of Ian, then we talked about the passing of Gordon Lightfoot, I guess, uh, Shirley Eichard as well, someone that... Uh, that you knew well. I mean, it's been it's been a tough year in the music in the music world, in the Canadian music world. It's been it's been a year of loss, and it's 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 nice to have something a reminder of of all the greatness that's out there with your album coming out. Well, thank you very much. I mean, yes, losing people at it's kind of a function of age, you know. Uh, uh, you, you're very saddened by it, but you kind of have to at this age roll with the punches and just accept things as they are. Were you, I mean, the amount of the outpouring of, of admiration uh, for, for those who've passed in the past year has also been a reminder of just how influential that music was, right, or is? Yes, well, of course, Gordon uh, went way back with, with Ian and I. In fact, I think we were the first people to record his material. And uh, I think we were among the very first to record Joni Mitchell's material as well, uh, we always felt, and I still feel, that that uh, at a certain point, your writing has a, a sameness to it, and you you need to think about other people's material to kind of jolt you out of that that and and get you sort of moving again uh, in in a in a more interesting direction. Yeah, I remember hearing you say that in, back in Greenwich Village. You know, if Bob Dylan can write songs, and so, so can we. So can we. Uh, it's an <laughs> so interesting. So we thought. It, I, I don't think we, we realized what his output was going to be. <laughs> oh, it was prolific. It was prolific. Yeah. You must have. You must have. I mean, it's it's hard even to know when, when sitting down to try to talk to. I mean, you, you've seen, you've 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 been around so much, and and you've accomplished so much. Do you have any sort of one story you like to tell? One sort of silly story about about the road years that you that shocks people or or, or amuses people. Oh gosh, you've caught me off guard. There's so many. I'm sure. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. hard to kind of hard to pin down one. Um, yeah, Dylan you know, went we electric. I think you were the. Stories. Go ahead. Sorry, I remember the Dylan went electric we, we one. I think I've seen stories, that. But <laughs> we all have road stories, but but it's really hard to sort of immediately call one up. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, it may it may occur to me as we talk. <laughs> Go sure. I mean, I remember you were there when Dylan went electric, right? And there's a story about Pete Seeger being in tears, and you know just how seriously everyone took that movement at the time. And and sometimes I think that's kind of been lost over the. I mean, there's still cartoons about people being mad about, still mad to this day about Dylan going electric. Yes, but I think it was time for him to do that. Dylan was never one to wait around to, for people to catch up to him with what he wanted to do. Um, my memory of, of that night was, you know, partly it was um, an, a very strong reaction against the electric instruments on stage, but it was a bit of a, a dog's breakfast on stage. It wasn't, it wasn't very together. They hadn't rehearsed and, uh, you know, it, it was so, so much louder than, than the rest of the music that evening had been. And I think it was just a shock to everybody, but 
we we get over we get over shocks. We do indeed. Uh, just as a last question for you, quickly, what would you like people to take away from this record? Um, I, I would like to think that it it makes people think about various things. Um, the uh, the title song at the end of the day, uh, I co-wrote with Joan Besson, a Prairie Oyster, and uh, that the way that that song happened was I was. One of the things oh. I, I sort of resent about Donald Trump, among other things, is that he turned me into a news junkie and <laughs> oh, no. constantly watching the news channel. And uh, it just occurred to me that every commentator that came on the news channel would say, well, at the end of the day, this would happen. There or we at go. the end of the day, this is true, you know. And it, I so... realized that that phrase had a lot more meaning. It did. And, Sylvia and I Tyson, I, I, appre- I, appreciate, I appreciate your time so much. Thank you so much tonight. Thank you. When we lost John, we knew that it was really over. I was talking to Yoko, and she said, Ah, oh, I think I've got a tape of John. Paul called me up and said he'd like to work on Now and Then. He put the bass on, I put the drums on. It's the last song that my dad and Paul and George and Ringo will get to make together. And if I make it through, it's all because of you. Yeah, you can't mistake that vocal, can you? More than half a century after the band's breakup, which happened just a little bit before I was born, so I'm always aware of when the Beatles broke up. There is a new Beatles song that came out today. I'm sure you may have heard. It was hardly uh, hardly kept under wraps. I mean, it was absolutely everywhere today. It's called Now and Then. It was written as a home demo by John Lennon in the 70s, recorded on cassette with just John's vocal and piano. Um, after John's death, apparently, so the story goes, Yoko Ono gave the demo um, to one of the remaining band. I think it was to George Harrison, uh, which also included two other songs that were released in the 1995 anthology, Free as a Burden and Real Love. But Now and Then would linger unfinished for another quarter century, really because the quality of the tape recording that it was done on didn't allow them with the technology of the day, didn't allow them to actually extract the song properly. They couldn't make a new version of the song with it. It was just the quality just wasn't good enough. But Paul never forgot about it. He'd brought it up over the years saying it was a great song, one that absolutely needed to be finished and would likely, of course, be the last Beatles song. So with a little help from their friends called Technology, uh, the song is finally done, as you heard, combining John's original piano and vocal, uh, George's guitar from the 1995 sessions I just talked about, and Ringo singing and drumming in 2022 along with Paul's work on it. Giles Martin, son of legendary producer George, was the producer on it. And again, a part of it too was just the sound separation technology that Peter Jackson and his team used in that Get Back documentary back in 2021. So they're able to separate John's voice from the tape and the background noise. So, And the creation, the result is this. Now, there are many Beatles fans around the world who are very excited to hear what today would bring. Piers Hemmingson was one of them. He's the author of The Beatles in Canada, The Origins of Beatlemania, and he joins me now. Piers, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, expectations, I think there was a lot of buildup around this one. I mean, it's really the first Beatles, new Beatles record in a quarter century. What were your expectations going in? What did you think? What did you think about it, and how has it met them? Okay, well, just to put 
things into context, uh, I would say, you know, I've been a Beatles fan for, you know, I was a schoolboy in England in 1963 when I heard about them. My brother told me, oh, you got to watch this group on television. Um, so I followed them for a long time. Um, I'd say to contextualize um, the last five or six years, maybe longer, there's been a campaign, I guess, since 2017 to reissue, you know, starting with Sgt. Pepper and the White Album and the Abbey Road and the Get Back mm-hmm. and then the Get Back film. So we, it's always been about, you know, the older repackaged stuff. So number one thing I thought about today is it's so nice to get something different and new. So that they always, uh, they never they never disappoint their fans. They always uh, deliver. And the demo that we all knew from many years ago was not very good. And, and you know, it, it was, uh, as you know, it was a John Lennon cassette demo from 1979, was given to the Three Tools, as they were called in the 90s, uh, along with uh, Real Love and Free as a Bird. Uh, I think one other one called Grow Old With Me, which they didn't do. Um, and I guess the technology has now come to this point. Now, when I first heard, you know, a couple of weeks ago, somebody said, oh, we've got an advanced copy. Well, it wasn't an advanced copy. It was just somebody yeah. doing a do-it-yourself thing on it. Um, so the difference between what I was used to hearing and what I heard today was phenomenal. So they embraced the new technology. You know, God bless Paul and Ringo, because even with George not there, George had a stab at it. Uh, he he uh, Paul does his thing uh, and kind of a tribute to George. But the whole thing hangs together. And I, I would say this. I'm not going to say it's strawberry fields or imagine that's not what you're going to get you're getting something in the same league as real love and free as a bird which are both tremendous songs this one has to sink in you have to you really pay attention and and i haven't i've heard it a couple of times ben but i have not i haven't had that sort of sinking in yet so i need to to spend time with the track and uh that's that's always fun as a Beatles fan. What what really impressed me about it is just the the opening is great, and then the first voice you hear is just it's John Lennon. You think that that's John Lennon, and I've never heard the song before. And I, that part of it to me was quite was quite striking. I mean, it is truly a Beatles record, and here we are in twenty twenty three. Absolutely, go figure. Sixty years uh, of this, and I had the same reaction. It's John. It you know. Push all the AI talk aside. Um, it it's a Beatle record, and and they've done a really good job. And God bless them. Yeah, and it's quite an intimate record as well. I mean, I didn't know what to expect exactly, but but it's it's a very heartfelt song. I know it wasn't complete, uh, but it, it's a very heartfelt song. It very much speaks. I mean, it feels a bit like a journey through time, or at least a journey back in time, and a time when the band was in a really tough position and and there's there's something quite touching about the record as well yeah um i guess if you look at their strategy uh to to get giles martin involved uh in in 
sort of, I mean, Real Love and Free as a Bird were definitely Jeff Lynne produced. They have that ELO type of sound. I think they moved toward, closer towards a Beatles sound with Giles Martin. Um, that's just me. Uh, some people have told me today that it sounds a bit tinny um, because maybe it wasn't analog, uh, you know, technology that took it from the cassette into what it is now. Um, I haven't felt that, but again, I got to spend time with it. I'm not not sure. If you'd heard the original demo, though, I mean, it is remarkable what they were able to do with it, because I gather for a long time, they simply couldn't get rid of the hissing. They couldn't get, there was humming in it. They just couldn't separate John's voice. They just couldn't, it was there, but it was, it was very formless, it was shapeless for a long time. But credit to Paul McCartney for saying, for never really giving up on this. He obviously was determined to make this the last record. Yep. And and that it is. I mean, until the next last record. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> is that I lived in England in the 90s, uh, not far from where, where uh, Paul uh, had his studio on the South Coast. And, uh, you know, we were told, you know, this is it, you know, that they put this together. It's the it's their final thing. And they were good. I mean, and this is good, too. So. I'm, I'm, you know, put me down for a copy of the single and, and I'll buy a copy of the blue album and might even get a red one too, because they've, they've, they've remixed the stuff for, for both of those album sets. And it's fitting that, that, uh, they couldn't put, um, now and then, uh, on anthology three, it wasn't time, you know, there, it wasn't ready. It wasn't. And that's the Beatles, right? Ben, they don't do stuff unless it's really good. So, I I was asked uh, yesterday by somebody here, you know, what if it's not good? I said, well, they won't release it if it's not good. And the Beatles don't do anything unless it's Beatles quality. So uh, I wasn't I wasn't too worried about it. But what I did feel today is that it was much better than I had even thought. Piers Hemmingson is with us. He's author of The Beatles in Canada, The Origins of Beatlemania. We're talking about uh, the first, the new Beatles single today, released 2023. Here we are, 53 years after their breakup, and they have a new single out called Now and Then. And it's actually, as we were mentioning, it's it's quite, uh, it's very impressive, especially if you're used to hearing the Beatles. There's a John Lennon a vocal right off the top, and it's just, it really is a Beatles song. The flip side, because I guess they're trying to make this the beginning and the end, uh, is Love Me Do. And you have a great story about Love Me Do's connection to Canada, right? To Smith's Falls, is that right? Oh, absolutely. And uh, when when I started uh, thinking about writing, you know, uh, the book series that that is the Beatles in Canada, and and there is a red book and a blue book. And when I was starting the red book, um, I've always I never loved the Beatles the way that girls, young girls, love the Beatles. I love their records, so that was that was something that. I grew up with is like, okay, I'd look at the label and I'd look at the design of the label and the credits on the label. And uh, it it was phenomenal when I got to the point where I was documenting, uh, you know, just how Love Me Do got its start in North America. And really what uh, Capitol Records did in Toronto was go against their, uh, their head office in Los Angeles because there was a guy there named Dave Dexter Jr. who was kind of a jazz guy, had been with Capitol since the 40s. And he wasn't, uh, he claimed he didn't like the sound of a harmonica. 
so he passed on the Beatles throughout all of 1963. But lo and behold, up here in, in Toronto, Paul White, who was, you know, uh, doing everything. He was a promo guy. He was A&R guy. He had convinced uh, his his management that he could release stuff for the Canadian market that wasn't necessarily uh, going to sell in the U.S. market. And he would get the same pile of records every week that uh, Dave Dexter got in Los Angeles. And out of the pile he got in uh, late 1962 was a Parlophone copy of Love Me Do. And he put it on his pile. He said, I'll listen again. I, I, I'm not sure. Well, it was on his listen again pile of, you know, for weeks. And then he decided to issue it. And of course, back then, Ben, uh, Capital didn't press its own records in Canada. They, they outsourced everything to do with pressing of vinyl 45s or LPs to RCA Victor. And RCA Victor had two plants in, uh, in Canada to press records. One was in, uh, Quebec or in Montreal, just in the suburbs of Montreal. And the other one had been open in 1954 was in Smith Falls. And, uh, that was a slightly newer plant. And, uh, I was able to interview people that worked there at the time that Love Me Do was on the presses. And I learned from them. Uh, all about how the labels were stuck to the records, how they used uh, steam presses to to uh, heat up the vinyl. And it was dangerous work. You know, fingers were lost and people were oh. burnt and things like that. It was not a glamorous job to, to work the presses. Eighty percent of the, the, the workers who managed the presses were women uh, working part time uh, to supplement whatever income was needed to run a household. And they, there was shift work involved, but I did speak with some wonderful people who who did the the job of creating the uh, pressing plates, and uh, there were only one thousand copies of Love Me Do uh, pressed by RCA in February of nineteen sixty three. Paul White always said it was it was a zinc record. It sold one hundred and seventy five. I I can't remember the exact number, but it didn't sell. But uh, the people in Smith Falls, when I launched the book in 2016, February or March of 2016, we had the launch there and we had a sold out uh, auditorium and all of the ex uh, RCA workers. They were so proud to turn out. And we had some wonderful pictures of those people, albeit they were younger than uh, pressing the records and packing the records. Uh, it it. It is the birthplace of the Beatles in North America because that is where the Beatles music was created. This song that we need to talk about, because again, another sentence I never thought I'd say in 2023 is that the Beatles are back with a brand new song. You've taken a song that was started, you know, over three decades ago and it's ready to be released into the world. So we need to know the story of it. So please take us back. Um, before John died, he was working on some songs and uh, Yoko spoke to George Harrison and said, you know, we've got some, uh, I've got a cassette with some John songs on that he never got to finish. Would you be interested in finishing them up? So we thought about it and we thought, yeah, it'd be great, you know, because, I mean, in a way we'd be working with John again, you know, which we thought we'd never be able to do. So uh, we worked and finished two of the songs, but we didn't get around to finishing the third one, and the third one's called Now and Then. 
I kept thinking, there's something here, you know, we, we should finish this. So uh, I ended up uh, talking to Ringo and we asked him if he'd if he fancy putting the drums on again because the first one on the... Because uh, we didn't have time, it was just a machine drum, so it wasn't soulful. So he put his drums on again and then I thought, well, I could up the bass a bit, so I put the bass on again. We already had George playing guitar, and we had John uh, on vocal. So it was kind of magical doing it. So we just gradually finished it up, and I then got in touch with Giles Martin, who's George Martin's son, who was our great Beatles producer. And um, together we put some strings on it, so we ended up making it into a real record. Pierce Hemmingson is author of The Beatles in Canada, The Origins of Beatlemania. We're talking about the new Beatles record that came out today, Now and Then. It's the, meant to be their last record. It was taken from a demo tape that John Lennon made. But with the help of new technology, they've been able to actually create a very good sounding song out of that original demo. There was a lot of problems with the tape at the beginning. We've also been talking about The Beatles in Canada. The first, the flip side of Now and Then is their first single, Love Me Do. And that was first ever pressed in North America in Smith's Falls, as Piers was just mentioning. I didn't realize George Harrison had quite the connections to Canada long before they arrived on these shores. Yeah. So George uh, was uh, 12 years younger than his sister, Louise. Uh, Louise, his sister, shared the same name as as their mother, Louise Sr. Louise, uh, the sister, emigrated to Canada in 1956 with her husband, Gordon Caldwell, who was in the mining business. I believe he was from Scotland, but they... uh, you know, there, she was young, he was older. There was a bit of a scandal in the family that that uh, perhaps, I guess, uh, you know, he, he was married before. I don't know. But they ended up in, in uh, Virginia Town, which is a town uh, east of Kirkland Lake. And I've been up there. And it's yep. uh, as remote as you, you can imagine. Gold mining uh, was, was, was what was happening up there. And I did work with Louise. I I really enjoyed her. She was a bit acerbic, um, but uh, she was very proud of the time that she spent in Canada because both of her boys were born in Kirkland Lake. So from a family, she has happy memories of Kirkland Lake. And uh, I will tell you that uh, George would uh, looked up looked up to his older sister and there was a lot of correspondence and i remember louise showing me postcards of uh that george had sent to her in kirkland lake you know i've joined a band you know the quarrymen i i've before that i've I've playing the guitar and uh their mother uh came to visit uh young louise up there in kirkland lake about 1960 or 61 and uh louise told me the story of of how her mother had been asked by George to buy a pair of cowboy boots in Canada. And uh, she did that. She bought a pair of cowboy boots in Kirkland Lake, brought them back to Liverpool. George wore them in Hamburg. And of course, John and Paul uh, wanted to have cowboy boots just like George's. So they went to some leather place in Hamburg and had theirs made. But George was always kind of the fashion leader uh, in the Beatles, you know, which I don't think a lot of people know, but he was the youngest. And uh, yet they would look up to him for fashion, which is kind of interesting. Right. And boots from Kirkland Lake, no less. And he had an uncle, right? An uncle in Toronto? 
an uncle in Toronto and uh, aunt. So it was uh, Uncle Edmund and Aunt Mimi. And Edmund worked for, I believe it was called uh, Smith Transport. It was a, it was a trucking company, and he was a, a supervisor. And they had two boys, and they lived in Toronto until about 1967. And then they moved to, uh, I think it was Coral Gables in Florida. But when George was touring with the Beatles in 64 and 65 and likely 66, uh, he would always have his family come to the King Edward Hotel and spend an evening getting caught up with his uh, with his family and relations, which is kind of cool. Yeah, unbelievable. Because, of course, we all remember those incredible shows at Maple Leaf Gardens, but I didn't realize there was a George connection to Toronto that far predated that. And imagine what would have happened if George had decided to I mean, oftentimes back in the day, people would pack up and follow their siblings to new lands. Imagine if George had ended up in Kirkland Lake instead of with the quarrymen. It's highly possible, right? Well, uh, he he did make friends with a photographer here named John Rollins, who who I, I know well. And John communicated with George uh, in 65 and 66 and afterwards. And, and George did tell him that he thought about emigrating to Canada in, in his sort of older sister's footsteps. If he had come to Canada in the late 50s, would there have been a Beatles? Well, that's the, the eternal no. question. What <laughs> if, what if, I, I didn't realize that Canada really was at the forefront of Beatlemania in North America, that Canada had the first big Beatles, the only Beatles fan club, and it had huge membership long before the Americans got on board with it as well. Yes, well, that, that's the, the, the thing. There was so much traffic of people between Canada and the UK, England, Ireland, Scotland, and uh, Trudy Metcalf was, had parents from England and you know they they sort of she was I think 13 or 14 and her parents sent her to to England for the summer from Toronto and it was there that one of her cousins said oh you must come in to to see the Beatles they were playing in Margate in Kent and they were there for a week and she she went to one of the shows and uh, fell in love with the Beatles and made it you know her mission to uh, write to the fan club to say, when I get back to Canada, can I start a fan club? And she did. At the same time, there was a, another uh, a girl in Montreal named Jody Fine, I believe. And she also wrote to the Beatles fan club to start a, a Montreal chapter of the fan club. But when the Beatles came to, uh, to do Ed Sullivan, uh, there was no U.S. fan club. So uh, I think it was uh, Brian Somerville, who was the press man for the Beatles. He arranged for uh, Trudy and her sort of vice president next door neighbor, Don Hester, who also has an important role in this story. Trudy and Don were flown to New York City with Trudy's father being the chaperone. And they got to hang out with the Beatles at the Plaza Hotel, had their pictures taken by the famous uh, Beatles photographer, Dezo Hoffman, uh, with bags of Beatles fan mail and uh, hanging out with the Beatles. And uh, it was like, uh, you know, their, their 20 minutes of fame, but it didn't end there because, you know, the Beatles came to play in Toronto and they had their pictures taken again with the Beatles on stage at Maple Leaf wow. Garden. I had no the idea they had to fly, fly Canadian fans down to the Ed Sullivan show with that famous yeah. Ed Sullivan show experience. I, uh, I think well. it, at the peak, it was the largest fan club outside of the UK with, with upwards of 90,000 uh, members. 
uh, paying like 25 cents each. So that's right. You had to pay. Money. I forgot. Yeah. Serious money. And and then and then as as we go through the Beatle Beatlemania, the fame, uh, there's an interesting connection to Toronto and Varsity Stadium when all of a sudden it becomes pretty clear that John Lennon doesn't want to, wants to do something else. And there's sort of a a moment where he decides, makes a decision that that kind of opens opens his eyes to what could be without without as without the Fab Three, so to speak. And, and this also happens in Canada. So there's yet another moment of Beatles history that unfolds with a Canadian Canadian flavor. It's not quite as simple to say that John was tired of being a Beatle or was fed up with being a Beatle. I'm not sure he was. Through through the, the, the work I've done on the Blue Book, which I'm hoping to have out in, in just a few months, it became clear to me that the idea of playing in Toronto was, wasn't just John's. It was Yoko's as well. And I, I really do believe a lot of people you know, were delighted that John and Yoko did come to Varsity Stadium. Uh, some were less excited to hear uh, Yoko wail and scream. Uh, but when you listen to the recording now, you, you know, you put it in a different light. Yoko was doing something radically, you know, artistic, if you will. I don't think the rock and roll audience was her target market, if you will. But it was monumental. You know, and it, it did lead to the breakup of the Beatles um, weeks later. Right. And he plays this Varsity Stadium show that you mentioned, I believe, where he sort of because he was he wasn't John wasn't was a kind of a shy guy. Right. And all of a sudden he finds out that he can actually maybe do this and enjoy this, though, on his own. And and I think that's what you pointed out uh, in the book. Yeah, he he uh, he he was so nervous you know, to, to play without his uh, Beatles. But when you when you look at the pictures of them at Varsity Stadium, he's got everybody lined up just like they're the Beatles. You've got a drummer in the back. You've got uh, Eric Clapton and Klaus Vorman covering, you know, the positions of uh, Paul and George. And he's over to the, you know, the far right hand of the stage. And, and Yoko's in behind him, of course. But uh, it, the stage setup was very much as though it were the Beatles, uh, and they did play some Beatles songs. Uh, one song from the White Album, which was uh, uh, "Your Blues," I believe, and uh, "Dizzy Miss Lizzie" as well. Uh, so there was some Beatles, but but more more of the John and Yoko material than the Beatles material. So uh, it was it was an experiment. And right. uh, I, I was fortunate over the years. I've met Eric Clapton. And uh, Alan White and Klaus Foreman. I never met John, um, but they, you know, what they told me was that they, it was a whirlwind. They didn't even know what they were getting into. They, they just rehearsed on the plane and showed up. There were rented drums. They brought guitars. Uh, no time to really put together an amazing show, but it was in its own um, historic. Right. And and not long after that, he would have sat down to right now and then. I mean, not too long after that, he would have written the demo that is the single release today. Any thoughts? I mean, for for a lifelong Beatles fan, I was wondering um, whether today is a bonus. You get a bonus song that you never expected or whether there's a certain bittersweet idea that maybe this is the last new Beatles song. This will be the last time you get to hear a new Beatles record. From my perspective, it's been a really exciting day. Um, the, 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 uh, the, the, the social media, uh, you know, you couldn't keep up with it. It, It's, 
all the fans that that uh, that I was in touch with were most of them. I mean, I heard a couple of people say, well, you know, it's not so good. But mostly people thought it was excellent. And I, I'm in that camp. I think it's what they've done with it, as you mentioned earlier in this, uh, that they use technology uh, to such an extent that that you hear John's voice. It's spine tingling. And when you go back to uh, the Beatles in the 60s, they weren't afraid to take on a sitar, a mellotron, a Moog synthesizer on Abbey Road. They were doing things uh, with musical instruments that that led the way in some respects. And they're doing it again with AI. So am I sad? No, I'm not sad. I'm happy. I think this is, like I said, the Beatles through through from 63 onwards, they never disappointed their fans ever. Okay, there were some dodgy compilation records, uh, you know, like love songs. And, a few, uh, yeah. Ballads. Yeah. Yeah. Rock and roll, like things that I didn't really buy. But, uh, they, you know, the marketing people always do their job, too. So the Beatles wouldn't be as big as they are without the marketing people. So a happy day for a Beatles fan. Piers, uh, thank you yeah. so much for your time and your knowledge of this. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. 